God's been doing something um, new in my heart, and I think I say that a lot. And I think the reason for that is that God is regularly working in my heart. And um, I hope you would be able to put your finger on what God is doing in your heart. And if not, I would ask you, why not? So, just right up front. God's doing something in my heart, and what it comes down to is that he is, the way I would say it at least, is that he is calling me back to the heart of prayer. And what I mean by that is I've always had a recognition of the necessity of prayer, like how important prayer is. I've always kind of, even from early on in my faith, I learned how to pray 20 years ago in this very room. In fact, probably the the seat that you're sitting on, I've prayed right there (laughs) at some point. Because when I was in Master's Commission, 20 years ago, when I moved to Springfield, Missouri and started attending this church, it was in this room every single morning for an hour that we would pray. And so I learned how to pray in this room, probably right where you're sitting. At some point, I prayed there for an hour, I'd imagine, because it's been all over this room. And so with that said, I've always kind of understood how prayer was important and always prayed, okay, as a result. I prayed, though, because I knew that I should. I knew that I ought to. I knew that it was important that I prayed, and so I prayed because I ought. And what God is doing in me now is something new. And something that, quite honestly, transparently, I've never had before. Where he is calling me and and making it such that I desire prayer. That I want to pray. And some of you know exactly what that's like. And some of you are like, oh man, that'd be awesome. I still pray because I ought. Well, here's the thing. Right up front, let me just say... This is something that is beyond my ability to do in my own heart. I recognize my limitations, okay? And so I know that I can't do this myself and that it is God who is doing it in my heart. So what that means for me is this, because I want it for you as well. I want God to do the same thing that he's doing in my heart, in your heart. But the work of that will not be happening on this stage, The work of that will not be happening right now on this stage. It has happened in rooms with doors closed all week long. Because I cannot convince you to want it. But the Holy Spirit can move in each and every one of our hearts. And so the work of this is something that has to happen in prayer. And so I've been praying for this church. I've been praying that church, the praise, praise assembly would become a praying church. That God would give each and every one of us the desire to be a praying church. And so I've been talking to the people that I know who pray. And I've been asking them, please be praying for praise, that praise would be a church that prays. And they're like, what? And I said, okay, pray that church would be, that praise would be a church that prays. And if you're one of those who already is praying regularly for this church, that's something you can pray for, that God would move on all of our hearts and call us to become a church that prays, because this is so vitally important, right? Like, and, and so I've, all, I've asked all of us, if you haven't started it yet, we've still got like five months left before the end of the year, 
But I've asked everybody to start praying 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 18 over the heart of this church. And if you haven't done it yet, it's not too late. Essentially, that, that verse says, pray that God would keep forever such purposes and thoughts in our hearts. What God has done in us, may it keep, may it stay, may it be there, but also that he would direct our hearts more and more towards him. So in other words, saying, God, God, more and more, give me a heart after you. More and more, oh God, may I want to pray. May I have the desire to pray, not because I ought to, but because I want to. You do that in my heart. And so I've been asking you to pray that all year long. And so if you haven't started yet, it's the first week of August. You can still do it. Four months, five months. Five months left, okay? So it's not too late to start praying that prayer. Join with us in praying that because it's so vitally important that we be a church that prays. And, and quite honestly, prayer will always be difficult. The difference between somebody who prays and somebody who does not is that a person who prays just recognizes the value of prayer and so puts in the time and the energy and struggles and battles against the works of the enemy to keep us from prayer. Because there will always be distractions. There will always be doubts. There will always be deceptions that the enemy will bring against us the moment we commit ourselves to really pray. It doesn't matter how old you are or how long you've been praying. The enemy will always try to keep you from prayer. And the only difference between somebody who prays and somebody who doesn't is that the person who prays values it. Because there is no spiritual gifting of prayer. If you're like, blasphemy, look it up. It's not in there. Which means that you cannot outsource your praying to those who are the intercessors. You are the intercessor. If you want to be a part of a praying church, that means you. you got to pray. And so that's why we're doing this series just called Watch and Pray. Watch and pray because it's not easy. And Jesus, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, man, he prayed and he told his disciples, pray with me, but don't just pray. Watch and pray. He didn't say Kick back and pray. (laughs) He didn't say recline and pray. He doesn't say take it easy and pray. He says watch and pray, which is the image of a watchman standing on the wall on the edge of the city watching actively at work all through the night in spite of the fact that it's difficult, watching. It's active. This is something that takes some work. Now, last week I mentioned the difference between like a I called it a Hail Mary prayer, and I'll come back to that in a little bit. But as part of that, I, I made it seem like, and I, I want to revisit this, because I, I think I gave the wrong impression, like that there's a type of prayer that's, that we shouldn't be doing, like the short kind of one-sentence throughout-the-day prayers. Scripture is really clear that, like, we've all been created, uh, uh, called to pray constantly. So what does that look like? That looks like throughout the day, Firing off a one-sentence prayer, okay? That's what that looks like, regularly checking in. But even in my relationship with my wife, I check in with her throughout the day. I'll, I'll give her a call, and I'll talk to her for two sentences, and that's it. Like, we'll just say, hey, how's it going? Is everything good at work? Yeah, everything's good here. Just wanted to make sure that everything was all right. Love you, bye, boom. Or text message, just quick check in with her. I'll fire off those things. Why? Because we're in a relationship, Right? And, and maybe I'll check in and I'll say, hey, did you need me to pick up the milk after, after uh, work? Or do you need me to do this before I come home? Or uh, stuff like that. But if that is the extent of my relationship with my wife, that takes our relationship and makes it completely functional. 
right? So then all I'm doing is I'm just touching base with her in order to function. And so it's not just the individual firing off a message to my wife. It's also, on occasion and regularly, I am having deeper and longer and more intimate discussions with my wife. Right? So it's not just the individual, and both are important. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Like, so it's not only just firing off little messages, but it's also having deeper discussions about here's what God's doing in me right now, and, and here's what I'm praying for for our kids right now, and this is the verse that I'm praying over Asher right now, and here's the verse that I'm praying over Clara right now, and what's God really doing in you right now, and, and, and what's really going on at work? And most of the stuff she talks about, because she's an actuary, goes right over my head. And just like Pastor Nick, Nathan said, I just smile. But it's about engaging with her and participating with her. Which, by the way, he regularly does that to me. Pastor Nathan? Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. 100%. So what do you think? Oh, I agree. Anyways. But it's not one or the other. It's both and. That's a relationship. It's not choosing one or the other, it's both. And that's what it looks like for us in our relationship with God as well. We need to be in a relationship such that there's moments that we're checking in all through the day, praying constantly, but then there's also a praying that's like a deeper, more intimate, more intense prayer, the kind of prayer that Jesus had in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's what it means to watch and pray, and that's what this series is about. Because he said to his disciples, don't just pray watch. And he says it three times, watch and pray, watch, watch. So we need to know what watch means. Last week we talked about the fact that it means that we have a heart awake, a heart awake, because these are words that show up, cluster around this idea of watching in scripture. One of them is having a heart awake. This week, mind sober. And then next week, and cell phones off. Okay, so heart awake, mind sober, and cell phones off. So this week, a mind sober. A mind sober. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, one of the very first qualifications for a pastor or a leader in the church is to have a sober mind. And not only for the pastor, but also for the pastor's wife. That it's, it's not just the pastor, but both specifically are spelled out in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And then in Titus chapter 2, specifically talking to older men in the church, I would say older people in general in the church, that the, uh, Paul really pushes on this idea of make sure that you have a sober mind, a sober mind. And then speaking specifically to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, he talks to him and says, listen, you've been called to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Here's what you need, a sober mind. Okay, so it's important. But not only that, it's something that is tied very closely to watching. And last week I mentioned the fact that showing up right around the word watch all through Scripture, you also see the word awake. And I just made you take my word for it. I wish I wouldn't have done that. Going back, I probably would have done that differently. Um, But this week, I just want to show you really briefly, I want to show you a few verses of what I mean. Because also right around the word watching is this idea of a sober mind. That's why we're here, okay? So I want to show you a couple of verses this morning really quickly before we get into the verse we're going to be in, showing you that you don't have to just trust me. Here's what the Bible says. Watching is tied together with having a sober mind, okay? So I'm going to be first in 1 Peter. You can turn there if you want. You don't have to because it's going to be really quick. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, here's what it says. 
Be sober-minded. Be watchful. You know what I love about this? Isn't that what Jesus said to Peter? And Peter didn't do so much. And here he is, much later going, hey guys, I think this might be important. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Like he ties them together and he just says it. This is important. I think Jesus said it to me. I wish I would have paid attention. But here, I'm just saying it to you. Be sober-minded, tied together with being watchful. And here's why he says you should do that. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He says the reason why you need to be sober-minded and watchful is because Satan is real. Again, do you think Peter knew what he was talking about on this? Right, because remember Luke chapter 22, where Jesus told him, hey, just so you know, Satan has demanded you all. Because he has demanded to be able to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you, Peter, and once you have turned... Strengthen your brothers? You think Peter knew what it means to be attempted and attacked by Satan? I think he knows what he's talking about here. And I would say, this verse is as real today as it was when Peter wrote it, and as real as it was when Jesus was getting ready to be crucified. If you do not think that Satan is still active today, that he is still prowling around like a roaring lion seeking who he may, not, he may devour. You are a sitting duck because this is real. And so Peter says to them, this is real. It's real for you. It was real for me. And so here's what you need to do. You need to be sober-minded and you need to be watchful. Okay? So that's the first one. Now, the vast majority of the verses I'm going to read are just in 1 Peter. And the reason for that is because I do think Peter knows what he's talking about because Jesus did tell him, hey, be watchful and watch and pray. And so I want to see what Peter has to say. So I'm going to skip just over to the left, skip a chapter. We're not even going to go on a different page. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Here's what it says. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, which the literal language there is be right-minded and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So now we have sober-mindedness, not just tied together with watchful, but also being for the sake of your prayers. Now here there's something that I think we need to pause and pay attention to. Because I've been reading a lot of studies lately. And I found some really interesting things out about prayer and as far as how many people pray. Because study after study says that, in general, people who don't even attend church pray. I think that's interesting. In fact, one study just recently done says that 30% of atheists pray or have said that they have prayed recently. Now, that's interesting to me because atheist, how I would define an atheist, is somebody who doesn't believe in God and hates him for it, okay? (laughs) Like, that's who I think an atheist is. And so this survey was actually anonymous, 
And it says that they admitted to praying. I love that whole picture because you got a bunch of people who don't believe in God and hate him for it, but don't want to admit the fact that they're praying, but they, a third of them are. Okay, that says something to me. And then another 17% of people who say, I'm an unbeliever, which means I, I don't believe in God, but I don't hate him for it. So an unbeliever, 17% say they pray daily. What in the world? If you don't believe in God, why in the world are you praying? Most, most recent studies say that 55% of Americans are praying at least once a day. 55%, more than half, are praying at least once a day. And, and the number goes up to 74% are praying at least once a week. Now, a lot of these prayers, I'm sure, are those Hail Mary type prayers. I'll, again, I'll get to that in just a bit, but... I think it's really interesting that so many people are firing off prayers to heaven, and I think that that means something to me, that very inherently we have this desire to kind of talk to the divine, right? Like it's there, whether you say it or not, it's there. But the thing that was most interesting to me in this, these whole studies, if you miss nothing else, hear this. The thing that was most interesting to me in all of these studies is this. Over and over and over again, these studies say one thing. The older you get, the more you pray. Doesn't matter if you're in church or not. The older you get, the more you pray. Why do you think that is? Why would it be that, whether you're in church or not, that the older you get, the more you pray? I have a hypothesis. I'm not sure it's true, but here's my hypothesis. My hypothesis is that the older you get, the more you realize the limits of what you can accomplish on your own. The older you get, the more weak you realize you are and how many things are beyond your ability. And so the older you get, the more you try prayer, And you see that God responds to prayer. So you see that I can't do it. And you see that God does. And you see that when you pray, he moves. So this leads me to another question. If the older you get, you're going to pray. Why not start now? Save yourself three decades of pain and struggle. You're going to do it anyways. You're going to get there. Like, you'll start praying, right? So why not just start now? Do it now and see what God does now and see what happens as a result of it. Does that make sense to you? Because it totally makes sense to me. This is what it says. And here, what he's saying is that the sober-mindedness, the the focus, and and the older you get, the more sober-minded you should be. But the sober-minded focus will help you for the sake of your prayers. And it's an awareness of what's going on in your world. It says the end of all things is at hand. This is just no what's happening around us, okay? So it's an awareness of these things that should lead you to self-control and sober-mindedness for the sake of your prayers. All right, one more verse, and then I'll get to the verse that I'm actually going to be in today. I haven't started preaching yet. I'm just going to get there. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6. Here's what it says. And I should have read this to you last week. I didn't. Sorry about that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6. So then let us not sleep as others do, 
But let us keep awake and be sober. The word for keep awake there is the word let us watch and be sober. Okay, but just before this he mentions don't sleep, so they translate it as keep awake because those two words are ridiculously close. Okay, so, so here we have in one sentence all that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, right? Be awake, make sure your mind is sober, and watch. That's what I mean by all of these words kind of congregating around each other in Scripture. They keep showing up in close proximity, which is why I know that watching includes having a heart that's awake and a mind that is sober. And so here it keeps on, and it continues going, and here's what it says. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Pay really close attention to that. We'll get back to it in a moment. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So he says, listen, pay attention to your salvation. And here's the thing. When, when you're trying to be sober, you've got two things you've got to pay attention to. And we've gotten one sentence there in verse 8, faith, hope, and love. Isn't that cool? Faith, hope, and love in one sentence. And what I think is really cool about it is he says the breastplate of, of, of faith and hope are a, ble- a, bre- a breastplate. Faith and love, sorry, are a breastplate. But then he separates out hope. Now this is important because why would he take the time to separate it out? Because he mentions over in Ephesians chapter 6, again, that the hope or specifically salvation is our helmet. And here now he separates out faith and love and then he says hope of salvation is something different. That's a helmet, which protects your head. We'll get back to that in just a bit. But you see over and over and over again, these words kind of showing up together. Okay, you're, you're following with me, you're tracking with me. Now let's get to the verse for today. First Peter. If you haven't done it yet, grab your Bible. If you uh, don't have a Bible, there's one in your seat right around you. If you get one of the church Bibles, it'll be on 1014. And um, while you're turning there, if you haven't done it yet, also grab praise.fyi. Grab your phone, open it up to praise.fyi. If you tap on message notes, you'll find all of the verses that we're going to be covering today or have covered today all kind of laid out there along with an opportunity for you to take notes as well. Okay, so 1 Peter chapter 1. This is a passage I read to you last week, and I stopped where I stopped because I knew I, that the verse that I was going to be reading today is the verse that I'm reading today. This passage of Scripture has wrecked my heart legitimately, and I want it to wreck yours too. <laughs> Man, I hope it just tears that apart, okay? Because this is a beautiful passage of Scripture. In verse 8, he starts talking about what is the reality of the world that we're living in, what is the, the, the hour, the day that you and I live in, and here's what he says. First Peter chapter 1, verse 8. I want to read this passage again because it sets up the verse that we're going to be in. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Can you imagine Peter writing that? Peter who did see Jesus. The Peter who saw the heavens split and the dove descend. The Peter who saw Jesus heal people. The Peter who saw Jesus raise people from the dead. The Peter who saw Jesus on a mountain in at least some sliver of his glory, along with Moses and Elijah, he saw Jesus. He saw Jesus pray in the garden. And he saw Jesus be arrested. 
And he saw Jesus crucified. And then he saw Jesus rise again. And then he saw Jesus on the side of a lake. And Jesus say to him, do you love me, Peter? He saw Jesus. But look at who he's talking to. People who haven't seen Jesus. And he says to them, and I think he says it with reverence and awe. Because here's somebody who did get to see Jesus talking to a bunch of people who didn't get to see Jesus. Though you have not seen him, you love him. My friends, that's you and me as well. It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So you believe in him and you love him and that results in joy because you know he's real and you love him and those two come together and bring you joy. And you obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So this is really a whole passage about our salvation and what it looks like for you and for me. Because here's the thing, starting all the way back in verse 3, that's really what Peter is talking about. He's talking about our salvation and what it looks like. And, and this is a rich passage. Like this is the kind of passage that you really should break up into small bits and read in small chunks. Like because it's that kind. It's like if you take Christmas and Thanksgiving and Easter and roll them all into one day with all the eating and all the celebration and all the football and all the basketball rolled into all the candy too. All rolled into one day and you know you can't do it but you gotta anyways. It's like a pie that's so rich that you know you shouldn't eat it in one sitting, but you do anyways. That's this passage. That's why it's wrecked my heart. Like I talked about having a heart awake last week. This is the passage that gives my heart insomnia. First Peter chapter 1, verse 10, he continues on. He said, concerning this salvation, I want you to have the temperature turned up just a little bit on understanding what your salvation is like. That's what Peter says here. I want you to know it. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Oh, they got little glimpses that he would take stripes on his back and somehow people would be healed. And they got glimpses that he would be a suffering servant, but also God. And they got glimpses that he would not allow his anointed one to decay, that somehow he might die, but that he would come back again. They got little tiny pieces of it. And so they asked, what is that going to look like? What is the day going to be? Who is this going to be? And here's what it says. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They asked, oh God, what will that be like? Tell me, show me, I want to see it. See, because here's the thing. They wish they could have been you they wish they could be sitting in the pew right next to you today with the entire word of God laid out in front of them that they might see it in its entirety. That they might know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection like you get. But they only got glimpses. And the Spirit told them, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. 
The reason they wrote those things down was not for themselves, but in order that you might be able to sit here and read those things and put them all together and see Jesus Christ for who he is concerning this salvation. Turn the temperature up a little bit in your heart. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Oh, it's not even just the prophets who wish they could be sitting in that seat right next to you. But it's the angels who wish they knew what it was like to experience the salvation that you have experienced. Turn that temperature up a little bit on your heart. He says, now all of those things, your salvation with a proper view of what your salvation is. Move on to verse 13. Therefore. So this verse doesn't stand alone. This verse stands on all the verses that just came before it. Okay? So this is talking about, therefore, based on that salvation, the one that prophets long to look into, or angels long to look into, and prophets wish that they could fully understand. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. All right, everybody. Prepare your minds for action. Prepare your mind for action. Everybody got that? What in the world does that look like? Like we say, prepare your minds for action, but what in the world does it mean to actually prepare your minds for action? Okay, here's where I think it's super important that you understand the original language. And not understand the original language, but that you see what the original language is. Because they kind of water it down because they're a little afraid of what it actually says. Here's what it actually says. Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, I don't know about you, but any time when I'm reading in the Bible or a pastor says, you need to gird up your loins. Like, I've always felt awkward. Like, that's just like one of those things. It's like, uh, I do not think that means what you think that means. Like, girding up your loins, okay? This is important for you to know so that the next time you read girding up your loins in Scripture, you're not like, I'm not sure I know what that's about. So here's the deal. In the Bible, the clothing that they wore looked shockingly like a dress. <laughs> Scandalous, okay? So the men and the women all wore dresses, okay? So the Bible costumes that you see in all the Bible productions, unless it looked like a, a, like a bathrobe, that's not real. But the rest of them were actually pretty close. That's what Bible costumes look, Bible outfits the costume was, I mean, it's pretty close, okay? So here's the problem. Imagine you have to run from point A to point B in a dress. I have heard, I cannot say from experience because this is not that kind of church, but I have heard that is difficult, right? Running from point A to point B in a dress is difficult, okay? So what would they do? If they're going on a journey and there's a hard part of that journey or if they're getting ready to do something physical, what would they do? They'd grab the back hem of, I know, this is awkward for me too. They'd grab the back hem of their Bible costume and they'd pull it around and stuck it in their belt, okay? What do you got now? Shorts, right? Or jorts or Bible ports. I don't know. Like, it's something that's ridiculous looking, but super effective for any kind of fast movement, right? 
So what are you saying when you say gird up your loins? It's grabbing the back hem, pulling it around, and sticking it in your belt. That's what Peter says to do with your minds. Grab all the loose, flowing thoughts. All the scattered things. All the kind of reaching out in all the different directions. Grab hold of them, pull them around, and tuck them nice and tight. Because you need to have a sober mind. Gird up the loins of your mind, he says. Then he says, and uh, being sober-minded, there's no and in the original language. It says, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded. So I don't think these are two separate things. I think one speaks to the other. I think if you want to be sober-minded, it means girding up the loins of your mind, grabbing all the thoughts and pulling them tight and keeping this thing up here high and tight. So I think those two go together. Being sober-minded, preparing your mind for action, girding up the loins of your mind, however you want to say it. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is hugely important for us. Because remember, this is built upon our understanding of salvation. He says, set your hope fully on the grace. Set your hope fully on that. And the reason why that's important is that we just read another passage also in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, where it says, be watchful, be sober-minded. And he says there, he says, because your enemy is, is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Okay? So the problem is we can get the idea from reading that passage that what it means to be watchful is to like stand on the roof of praise assembly looking out watching for Satan. I'm going to see me some Satan. I'm going to make sure that Satan doesn't get a foothold here. I'm watching for him. Can I say to you, I don't want to look at Satan any more than I have to. And I don't want to talk about Satan any more than I have to. He's real. He's active. There's no doubt about that. I've got that established. But what I see in Scripture is not that you set your eyes on Satan. I see that you set your eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Right? And I don't set my mind on Satan or the evil of this world. I set my mind on things above. Okay, so what it says in that passage, go back to it. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, what it actually says, knowing that this is what's going on all around the world, just be aware of it. Your brothers everywhere are facing the same thing that you are facing. So be watchful and be sober-minded doesn't mean keeping your eyes open for Satan. Instead, it means set your hope fully on the grace that is to you in Jesus Christ, or the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's about setting your hope fully on Jesus. So grab all the other expectations and hopes that are kind of hanging out there. Take hold of those things and make sure that you wrap them nice and tight so that your mind is focused on Jesus. Now, What does it mean to watch and pray? It means to have a heart that is awake to God's glory. That the veneer of reality is pulled back and my heart sees the glory of Jesus Christ. 
And a mind sober means to have a mind that isn't all over the place with expectation or hopes, but that it's grabbed hold of and is fully focused on setting hope on Jesus Christ and his grace and the salvation that is to me in him. So that's a mind sober and that's a heart awake. But I need you to see something in this passage. And this goes back to like fourth grade grammar. So you're just going to have to remember some of that. The phrase preparing your minds for action, the phrase being sober-minded are not the main point of the verse. The verbs there are all modifying a different verb. So these verbs, preparing your mind for action, being sober-minded, are actually all speaking to setting your hope fully on the grace. So what do I mean by that? I'm saying, don't hope halfway in the grace that Jesus Christ offers you and halfway in your 401k. Don't hap, uh, uh, hope halfway in the grace of Jesus Christ and your salvation and halfway in your Roth IRA. Or even better, don't hope halfway in God's grace to you and halfway in your own goodness. Or halfway in God's uh, uh, death, in Jesus Christ's death, and halfway in your own health. Or even better, don't hope halfway in, in the fact that God is the one who is working in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure, and halfway in your own self-improvement abilities. Hope fully, it says. And, and, and even as you hear that word, hopefully, I don't know if what jumps into your mind is another word, Hopefully. Like for me, I use that word all the time. Hopefully this will happen. And hopefully that will happen. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying throw out a hopefully to the heavens. And the kind of prayers that we're talking about are not prayers that are like the types of prayers that you, 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 you just throw up to whatever deity might hear. Because when I talk about Hail Marys, I mean it in the full sense of the term. Some people pray without knowing the one to whom they're praying. Right? So they throw out a prayer to Santa Claus or to the universe and hope that if they throw out good thoughts and prayers, that it'll come back in some way to benefit them. As if there's like this divine karma that you throw out enough good thoughts and something will come back. That is a hopefully. And it, I think some people pray to the divine Mufasa. We know the one to whom we pray. And whether it's a deep, intense prayer or it's a short prayer, make sure that it is because of the grace that is to you in Jesus Christ that you pray. Not a hopefully to the heavens, but a hoping fully in the grace that is to us in Jesus Christ. That's what I see here. Now, hopefully, don't throw out a prayer. Because actually, here's the thing. When we throw out those kind of prayers or even... Maybe your hope is in your own prayer. Like this is, follow me on it. But like, I hear people say sometimes like, prayer is powerful, which it is. But the prayer itself isn't doing it. God is powerful. The prayer is connecting to God. And if you think that somehow, if you get the incantation right, that's not going to Christ as your source. That's called sorcery. Witchcraft is putting together a bunch of words in order to make a difference in the universe. That's witchcraft. That's sorcery. That's not going to Christ as our source. Jesus Christ is the only path to go to God the Father in prayer. Okay? So hope 
fully in the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hopefully, not partway, not halfway, not hopefully, but hopefully. That's what I see in this passage. Here's why that's important. Why that's important is the older we're going to get, the more we are going to realize that we do not have the power to do the things that need to be done. My wife and I just recently got a new dog, well, kids too. Both our dogs died in the last year, and so we were like, okay, it's time to get a new dog, and it'll be good for the kids and all of that. So we got a Chewini. Our old dogs were real dogs. And this thing, I think it's a dog, but sometimes I'm convinced that it's actually a cat. And I'm not saying whether that's good or bad, okay? I'm just saying, I'm not entirely certain. And the reason why is this. The dog was raised by cats. Like, you heard of humans that were raised by wolves? This dog was raised by cats. Um, and we didn't go and get it, like, like one of those high-dollar with papers dogs. That's <laughs> not our style. And so we, we went uh, to the Humane Society and picked up this dog. And there's a couple of red flags that we should have paid attention to. Number one, it's called a Chewini. Number two, it was three years old and had been brought back to the Humane Society. And then, no, it gets better. Somebody else took the dog and brought it back three months later. We should have paid attention, but we didn't. So get this dog. And this dog has serious problems. Like, when I say that, I mean legitimate. It has triggers. Like, it's a broken dog. And, and I mean that in, like, like the sense of the fact that it's a legit rescue. And so me as the alpha male, <laughs> like I have to be careful around this dog because I think really it was cats, that the cats beat up on it. This is what it said on the paperwork. And so I know that's kind of disappointing when you think about that alone. But, so, but it's thoroughly broken. Like this thing is, is broken. Like so in the mornings, I cannot take this dog out. Because if I start walking, for whatever reason, first thing in the morning, it has a trigger. And if I start walking towards it, I can be, oh, hello, come on, let's go. doesn't matter. Its defense mechanism is it pees. I mean, legitimately, this is a, it is a broken dog. And so we're trying to figure out, like, okay, so a week ago, I'm like, do I bring the thing back? Like, how attached are the kids to this thing? And, and it's really very sweet outside of, you know, all the brokenness, right? So, and I felt like God told me, Alan, you have a broken dog for a reason. And that is this. You and your family have this broken dog because you feel like you're supposed to foster it sometime in the future. And if you think this dog is broken... You ain't seen nothing yet. You think this dog has triggers? You ain't seen nothing yet. 
And it's so true. Because I can't fix that dog. And if I can't even fix a dog, how in the world can I uh, fix the broken heart of a person? I cannot do it. And six months ago, I stood on this stage and I said to you as a church, I felt like God was calling us to be a church that goes after the heart. Now at that point, you should have stood up and said, hey, Alan, that's impossible. Because you can't do a thing in a person's heart. And so the moment I stood up and I said, we are going to be a church that goes after broken hearts, I committed us to one of two paths. Number one, to be a church that fails miserably. Or number two, to be a church that prays. Because I cannot do it. But I have watched as a result of my prayers as God has turned hearts before. And that is his purview and his alone. He works in people's hearts. So I cannot, I mean, I want you to be a church that prays. And some of you are already there, awesome. But I cannot make you pray. And more than that, I wouldn't want to. Because I don't want you to pray because you ought to. I don't want you to be a, pray, a church that prays because you feel like the pastor has guilted you into it. That's not my goal. If I do that, that's behavioral modification. And that is a failure. But if I pray... And if God moves on your hearts to also pray and to be a church that wants to pray, oh, then something powerful can happen and hearts that are broken can be mended. But that is only by his power and all our participation in it starts in prayer. Now listen, you're going to pray regardless. You're going to. Why not start now? Be a church that prays. And see what happens in this church that prays, have a heart for it, a desire for it, knowing that there's only so much you can do, and knowing that we serve a God who has no limit on what he can do. Be a church that prays. Amen. So, I'm asking you to pray. Because there's no spiritual gifting of prayer. It's just those who value it and those who don't. Either way, it's going to be a fight. Either way, it's going to be a battle. Satan will work his best to get you to stop. So fight through. Battle for it. But it starts with wanting it want it. So this Wednesday, I was planning on talking about how to pray for your spouse. That was my goal. That was my intention. Um, and I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, that's not the direction you're supposed to go. Instead, I think you need to have a prayer service. I was talking to Susanna Nemeti. She said, I think we need to pray. I said, yeah. And so this Wednesday at 6.30, if you're available, join us because we're going to pray over this church. We're going to pray over what God would do in this church and that he would call us to be a church that watches 
and praise. Watch and pray. Because God is not in the business of behavioral modification. God is in the business of changing us from the inside out. Liz mentioned to me that Nathan Sutton is getting ready to celebrate his two years sober. Can I say to you, that is not behavioral modification. That is God making a new creation in Christ Jesus from the inside out. He works in the heart, and the best work moves outward. That's what God does. And Paul, when he talks to Timothy, he does tell Timothy, he says, be sober-minded. And when he says that to Timothy, what he's actually talking about is he's saying, come back to the basics of the faith. You don't need a new doctrine. You don't need something that's like fancy sounding. What you need is the fact that each and every one of us have sinned and fallen short of what we were called to do. Every one of us is sinful and corrupted at a basic level. And we cannot change yourself. You can't change yourself. I can't change myself. But (laughs) Jesus Christ came in order that through his death, those sins might be paid for. But he didn't just die. He also rose again. And the power of the resurrection to us is this. That he not only cleanses our hearts. The power of the resurrection is this. That then he makes our hearts new. Not just that he makes us better or that we act better, but that fundamentally he changes us from the inside out and makes us a new creature, a new creation in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul tells Timothy. He says, grab all the other stuff, tuck it tight in your mind, focus on this one truth because it is the only message that can save. And the only hope that we have in our minds as a helmet of, as a hope of salvation in Christ Jesus. Not getting better. Doesn't matter whether you grew up in church or far from church. Every single one of us has sin deep in our hearts. And apart from the power of Jesus Christ, not one of us has hope. So Paul tells Timothy, man, pull it tight. Don't allow the distractions. Don't allow those other things to keep you from it. Focus in on the one message that can save through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to invite you to stand with me today because this is, without a doubt, the most important thing. Apart from this, there is no hope. And in this, if we hope fully in it, oh, you see the beauty of that salvation. And that salvation is to you and to me. But apart from the working of the Holy Spirit, we have no hope. It's in Jesus Christ, making us new from the inside out. So I can only go so far. The power of the Holy Spirit can call hearts, speak to hearts and say, he's talking to you right now. And if you have never repented, not gotten better, not acted better, but put all your hope for your own salvation in Jesus Christ. If you're trying to do it on your own, you're missing it. But if you're putting your hope fully in Jesus, for the very first time, oh, you can be made a new creature, new creation in Christ Jesus. So this morning, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. What that looks like is short for it is this. 
that looks like declaring him Lord of our hearts, saying, take it all, God, take it all, take it all, it's all yours. And then believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that that power is available to you. So it's declaring and it's believing. And this morning you have an opportunity to do that. And the same salvation that prophets from thousands of years ago just got glimpses of, glimpses of could be yours. And the salvation that right now angels are turning their attention to this room for can be yours. Because they long to look into it. Don't miss that opportunity. When I pray, I encourage you to pray with me. But it's got to be by the power of the Holy Spirit calling you. It always starts with him calling. Let's pray. Father, I do come to you and I don't ask. My own ability goes so far and I am so limited in my ability to communicate. My words, they break down like they, they fall apart and, and my mind so quickly loses them. But God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you take faithful words and you make them so much more. So God, right now, I pray against any distractions in this room. May every mind be sober right now, focused in, pulled around, held tight, focused in on one thing, hoping fully in the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Minds focused on that, set on that and that alone. Hearts called awake, oh God. Hearts that aren't asleep anymore. Not hearts that are drunk, but hearts that are brought to a place where they see your glory right now because of the power of your Holy Spirit. Move powerfully, I pray, by the power of your Spirit. I can't do it, but you can. And call right now in the name of Jesus. Speak to hearts. Do the work that only you can do. And I pray for those who are saying, he's talking to me. He's talking to me. Right now, move on their hearts. Call them awake in the name of Jesus Christ. Move in them right now in the name of Jesus Christ. All hope in him. Father, I do confess you as Lord of my life. And I just pray that they would join with me in that. I confess you. You are Lord of my life. You are Lord of it all. You deserve it all. You are worthy of it all. I give it all to you, O God. God, not only do I confess you as Lord, but God, I believe in my heart that you were raised from the dead and that same power that raised you from the dead is available to work in me and raise me from the dead and bring my heart new every single day my heart is made new by the power of your Holy Spirit. I want to know you in the power of your resurrection is what Paul said. May that power be at work within them right now. Not just a, a decision, but God, something so much more where there is a new creation in Christ Jesus. May that be the case, I pray, but all of it by the power of your Holy Spirit because no other power is sufficient but the power of your Holy Spirit. Do it in the name of Jesus right now, I ask. And Father, I do pray for this church. Call us right now by the power of your Spirit. Move on our hearts. Keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct our hearts towards you. May we be a praying church, not because we were guilted into it, not because we feel like we have to, but because we have a desire in our hearts to come before you and pray. We're going to pray anyways. We might as well start now. God, do that in us. I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit because it's only you who can even do that, oh God. Call us to be a praying church, I ask. In the name of Jesus, I pray all of these things.
Amen. Amen. In a moment, I'm going to dismiss. And if you're in here and you need prayer for anything, I'm going to encourage you as others would get ready to head out the door. Instead of heading out, would you come down to the front? And This prayer team has committed themselves to pray with you. When I say there's people who know how to pray, these people are part of that. And they'll not only pray with you today, but all week long, they'll be interceding on your behalf. And this morning, if you're in here, man, that decision is not a small decision. This isn't about just changing your actions. This is about making you new. And if you're in here for the very first time, you came to him and said, I'm not enough and I need you. Then right now, instead of heading out that door, do you mind just coming down to the front that we might be able to pray with you and talk through some of the next steps and what this can look like for you as well. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Make sure to be back next week for the last week of this series. And may you be somebody who watches and prays with a heart awake and a mind sober. Join us on Wednesday at 6.30 for that prayer meeting. God bless you today. Have a great day.